Hey, Real Talker, people don't feel safe these days. You know, whether it's riding inner city transit or living in a remote rural location, Canadians are experiencing escalating rates of violent crime. You write us about it all the time. So what's the solution? We sit down with the prosecution and the defense around our Real Talk roundtable to try to figure that out. Plus, Sapria Devetti's back with an indictment on Canadian media coverage of the dust-up with India. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Welcome to a special edition of Real Talk. You know, every Friday you expect us to present to you a Real Talk Roundtable. It's a tradition where we take something that, that matters to this audience. We take something that we know matters to Canadians, oftentimes because you tell us as much, and we dig into it. We, we bring you experts in the subject matter, and we set aside some time, typically the entire show, though there's a bit of a twist today. We leave time for a, a subject to, to, to really broaden in scope for us to dig deeper, as deep as we need to, until we start to get some answers, until we gain some understanding. And that's exactly what's going to happen today. We're talking about crime and punishment today in Alberta communities and across Canada. And what I'm particularly looking forward to is a, a candid conversation between, can we say, the prosecution and the defense in just a second, I'm going to introduce you to the presidents of the Alberta Crown uh, Attorneys Association and the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. We're going to hear two different perspectives on how things are in Alberta right now, in the courtrooms and outside, what some of the big stresses are and how those are translating into people's sense of public safety and security on the streets. We'll talk about so-called catch and release. We'll talk about bail reform. We'll be keeping an eye on our live chat on YouTube to see what you have to say about it and on our hashtag RealTalkRJ as well. And then a quick note to let you know in about 45 to 60 minutes from now, our dear friend Supriya Duvetti will return to Real Talk. It's been a while, as you know, for personal reasons. But Supriya's back because she wants to talk about the India story. You know, earlier this week, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Prime Minister's statement that Canada believes that a high-profile killing in cold blood, a targeted murder in B.C., was done by Indian agents targeting a Canadian Sikh leader. If you missed Harman Candola from the World Sikh Organization earlier this week chatting about it, you do not want to miss that interview, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Supriya has to say about that. This episode is made possible uh, by the support of our friends at Rello, and they have a pretty clear message for you. If you have been dreaming about starting a new career, about being your own boss, about running a thriving business, leaving cubicle life behind, if you want all that plus unlimited earning potential, a career in real estate could be your perfect match. You can get started today by enrolling with Rello. Rello is Alberta's top real estate school, and they'll support you every step of the way from studying for your exam to getting that license and then beyond. Plus, with Rello, your studies are 100% online, which means you can, well, carry on according to your own schedule. You want to fast forward? Cool. You want to slow it down? No problem. And right now, there's a special incentive for Real Talk audience members. You can save 20%. That's huge. 
on any Rello course using the code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK. 20% off any Rello course at Rello. That's R-E-L-O, Rello.ca. You don't have to look far to find evidence that right now Canadians don't feel safe. Rates of crime are up in Alberta's major cities, Calgary and Edmonton in particular, and some high-profile incidents have reiterated the belief that many people have, that there's desperate need for reform when it comes to Canada's justice system, when it comes to how we navigate crime and punishment. Our next two guests have had long careers in the courtroom, uh, and it's a pleasure to welcome both of them to this Real Talk roundtable on this Friday. Joining me in studio is Dallas Sopko. Uh, in his role as president of the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association, Dallas is a Crown prosecutor with more than 12 years of experience prosecuting all types of crimes across the province. Thanks for making yourself available, Dallas, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to be joined remotely as well by Paul Morrow, who's a criminal defense lawyer with more than 30 years experience, currently president of the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. Uh, Paul's a former Crown prosecutor and former president of the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association, which makes for an interesting dynamic, doesn't it? Hey, Paul, it's nice to see your face and thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me on the show, Ryan. Now, you've, you've been on, uh, well, you, you, you've worked behind both desks in the courtroom, so to speak, as a prosecutor and now as a, a criminal trial lawyer or as a defense lawyer. Uh, makes for an interesting perspective, I guess, when you're analyzing your own personal positions on crime and punishment. Yeah, I think it does give you a, a certain uh, depth of perspective, having worked both sides of the courtroom. And it allows you, I think, to see uh, the root causes of crime in a way that people who don't work in the system are often not really well aware of. I want to encourage uh, both of you to, to jump in on each other, to feel free to challenge each other or challenge assertions that I'm making, speak freely and, and uh, you know, leave nothing on the table, as they say. Dallas, you're here prosecuting uh, crimes across the province of Alberta, I, I guess, from, from uh, you know, maybe some of the more benign things, although I, I don't suspect that represents the majority of your caseload all the way up to the high-profile violent crimes that people see all the time. Um, I'm curious to see how you'll answer this question. What's your assessment of, of the state of, of justice or the state of affairs in this context in Alberta right now? Well, to start with, I have to be clear that I'm here on behalf of the association. I'm not here in my role as an individual prosecutor or here with my personal opinion. Sure. It's important to point that out. I would say that now, from the prosecution services perspective, uh, as it relates to crowns, we're in a, a relatively stable position, but there is more to do. And we are seeing the demands of the caseload on us. And in some locations, particularly in rural locations, we're still um, feeling the stress of the bottleneck that was created during the COVID shutdown. And we're trying to navigate that. And it is uh, leading to delays in the court system and concerns about resourcing uh, from crowns to sheriffs to clerks to courtrooms to judges uh, when you talk about delays in in, in the court system the, the first thing i think about is is, is is just carrying out justice and and the idea that we have the premise of what our justice system is based on and that is that you're innocent until proven guilty and that leads me to believe that there may be some people that are facing charges that may be arguing their innocence that want their day in court and they're not getting it is is that happening 
Well, and it's being delayed for sure. There's a case called Jordan from 2016. It was a, a watermark case from the Supreme Court of Canada that said that complacency has no place in our system and that cases must be heard within a reasonable amount of time and they set deadlines. And if we go beyond those deadlines, there's a risk that those cases will be stayed. And part of the reason why is because there's a stigma attached to being charged with an offence and the longer it takes for a case to get to court, it has adverse impacts on the accused and it has adverse impacts on the Crown's ability to prosecute that case at the end of the day. Paul, do you agree with, with Dallas's assessment of, 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 of the state of affairs in Alberta right now? I absolutely do. I think we're suffering from a shortage of resources in a number of aspects of the system. Uh, the Jordan case has been a real wake-up call for everyone who works in the system for an, a number of years now, and uh, we're still feeling out all of the effects of, of it. Uh, in a serious case, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that you've got 30 months to go from the laying of the charge to completion of the trial. And in many, many cases here in Alberta and in other provinces as well, it's a significant challenge to try to meet that deadline. Uh, now, there are a number of aspects to that. Uh, the resources to complete a prosecution include not just having enough Crown prosecutors, that's part of it, but also enough judges, enough courtrooms, enough court clerks, sheriffs, adequate funding for legal aid, for a defense counsel as well. So there's lots of moving parts to the system. For example, right now, a significant challenge in the superior courts right across Canada is there's about a 10% vacancy rate in the judges. Uh, we're short in Alberta, uh, something over a dozen judges of the superior court. We're short two or three judges in the court of appeal. Other provinces are in a very similar situation. Uh, I don't mean to say Alberta is any worse off than anybody else. All the provinces have a problem with this. Uh, so uh, these judges are all appointed by the federal government. No one really seems to understand what the holdup is, but this is causing significant problems and delaying serious and violent cases from being dealt with at trial it seems i and I, I guess this is a question for both of you what, what do you what do you, and, and maybe you get you've got to speculate here what's the delay what's are there not qualified i mean this is kind of how it goes with judges right you you be is it like you become like king's counsel you become esteemed among your peers you sort of prove that you've got the experience necessary and then if you're lucky and if you want the gig you get tapped on the shoulder uh i mean i'm asking the question facetiously paul but but are there not enough talented lawyers out there to turn him into judges what's going on i i have a really hard time believing that's true ryan i have a hard time believing that there's a shortage of well-qualified applicants uh the problem is twofold first off it's a very opaque process uh it is public knowledge that there is an application form that people can fill out if they want to become a judge it's a big long application form so people fill it out and they ship it off to ottawa and then that's it there's no publicly visible process that follows from that. There's no interview. Uh, something happens over the course of time, and the person who sent in the application someday gets a phone call, or they don't, and nobody ever knows why or why not, and nobody knows how long it's going to take. There's no particular time frame to it. Uh, so it's a very, when I say it's a very opaque process, I mean that no one outside the judicial appointment process understands how it works or how long it takes, or why it works the way it does. What we do know is that they're not appointing nearly enough Superior Court judges, and we don't know the reason for that. We do know that uh, for every judge they don't appoint, the federal government saves something like $400,000 a year. 
So maybe that's part of it. I really have a hard time believing there's a shortage of qualified applicants. So, Dallas, what does this mean? Like, I mean, I seem to remember, and this is a question I think that that we, we get a little bit of insulation here from the partisan side of things, because I, I, I can remember conservative governments uh, in Alberta pre-2015 talking about hiring prosecutors and, and talking about being well-staffed. I, I, I remember, uh, and maybe you can refresh my memory, during the Notley term, uh, the NDP from 2015-2019, some talk about hiring like 50 prosecutors something like that and then i know that that's also a conversation present day and we'll talk about what the ucp is doing and what some of their initiatives are, are looking like uh, how are things looking staffed on the prosecution side now today we're stable uh we're not sitting around waiting for more files to come in we're busy but we're in a better position from a stability perspective than we have been in decades uh going back uh to 2017 that's when the triage protocol came in it was a it was a lightning rod it was a it was basically a concession that we could not handle the capacity that was coming in of files. And unfortunately, we were going to have to make some tough decisions about viable cases and put them aside and not prosecute them, the, more, the less serious ones, to ensure that the most serious had their day in court. So but, in layperson's terms, if somebody gets busted, stealing, uh, arrested stealing a loaf of bread and somebody stabs someone, the person that steals the loaf of bread is going to have their charges dropped because we don't have enough court resources. That's a very simplified version, but essentially, yes. It's just like in a, in a, in a hospital during a, yeah. an emergency situation, you got to triage. You, everyone can't have 100% of resources uh, dedicated to them. We have to pick the most serious. We have to make sure that those are handled properly. And unfortunately, that means that some victims don't get their day in court on less serious files. So, Paul, that sounds to me like an opportunity for a guy like you. That sounds to me like a great opportunity for a, for a, for a defense lawyer here when the triage protocol is in place have you been able to capitalize on that well i have to say not really because the defense doesn't get much input on the uh, triage process uh, the triage protocol that was designed about six or seven years ago that dallas is referring to really was a process for crown prosecutors to assess their own cases which they principally do without reference to any information from the defense so every case is supposed to be reviewed by a prosecutor to determine whether the evidence is sufficient to meet the burden of proof. Uh, in other words, is there a reasonable likelihood of conviction? And secondly, is that case uh, in the public interest to be prosecuted? The triage protocol added another step to that to say, OK, now you've got all these cases that are viable cases. They're in the public interest to prosecute. Now rank them essentially in order of importance by how serious they are, how violent they are, how much of a danger to the community the offender is. Uh, things like that. And then when you get down that ranking to the level where you've run out of resources, you draw a line and everything that doesn't meet that line just gets withdrawn, stayed, thrown out. Um, the defense, I suppose you could say, benefited a little bit from that in the sense that some very minor cases were dropped. We didn't have to go to trial and some you know, minor shoplifting cases and things like that. But it was not in any sense a windfall for the defense bar. And I should probably add that nobody was ever really in favor of the idea of not trying viable cases. It's not in anybody's interest. Defense lawyers are members of society as well. We're taxpayers too. And we have the same interest as any other member of society, any other taxpayer, in seeing that crime gets tried, not necessarily punished, but tried in a fair trial process. What we're advocating for is a fair trial process for every case with enough resources to try every case. 
So this is this is kind of where I think that the the current provincial government uh, in Alberta, uh, led by uh, Minister Mickey Amory, would, would say that they're. And I'm not speaking on behalf of the government. They would say that, that, that that's what they're attempting to do right now, isn't it? I mean, by by making an announcement, this was just a very short time ago, the last couple of weeks, right, Dallas, that 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 they pulled the triage protocol. The government's taking this in, or at least promising Albertans that they're going to take this, I think, in response to high profile stories in the news and on shows like this, that they're going to take this in a whole new direction. They're getting rid of that. They don't want to see any charges dropped, right? That's that's correct. That's the messaging we have. But sometimes numbers speak louder than words and for the public to understand kind of the current status of our system yeah there are over forty thousand active cases in the system right now uh to make sure that i'm accurate that's over 110 files per prosecutor there's about 100 active homicides in the province right now that are being prosecuted there are about twelve thousand serious and violent offenses currently in the system and there are currently about 1,600 serious and violent cases that are over that presumptive ceiling that was created by the Supreme Court of Canada. What did you just say per prosecutor? How many per prosecutor did you just say? 110. Serious cases. No, 110 files per prosecutor. Yeah. But in the system, there's 12,000 serious and violent cases in the system but actively. I'm, I mean, I run a small business. If I have 110 things that I'm supposed to be keeping a keen eye on, let alone looking for specific details uh, for a strategy on how I can win a case. Got to make sure. I mean, it's like a doctor. You can't miss that lump. You can't miss the diagnosis. How on earth is a prosecutor supposed to keep an eye adequately on 110 files per? Well, and that's the challenge of our job. And we become efficient at it as we get more experience. But we need experienced people to stay and to work. And that has been a challenge over the last number of years. And some cases are very straightforward. They can be prepared in an hour or two, but murder cases, cases involving organized crime, some of those cases take months and months to prepare and months and months to go through court. So that's why the concern our association has is that the public might be left with the perception that we are just sitting waiting for files to come in. We have nothing to do. Our concern is if the triage protocol goes, that means there's more cases coming into the system. If uh, the um, politicians decide that they're going to have 100 more police officers on the streets, which I understand is the goal, that's inevitably going to lead to more charges, more trials. And if there's going to be zero tolerance approach, there's going to be more files coming into the system. So so in addition to our current file load, if we don't have any additional prosecutors, we don't have any additional defense uh, legal aid lawyers, we don't have any additional clerks, sheriffs, courtrooms, judges, how are we going to absorb this and ensure that just outcomes are resulting for everyone involved, including victims? Okay, and th this is a smart audience, and, and, and maybe I'm saying something obvious, Paul, but, but if a government, and most particularly, and maybe this is me being a little bit cynical, but, but I, I, I think that this argument would stand the test of a challenge. If, if a government is trying to send a clear message to the electorate that they're taking crime seriously, and if they're going to pour millions of dollars into adding more police officers onto the street, into removing the triage protocol, into they're going to want to provide or be able to provide proof of performance. They're going to want to see more arrests. They're going to want to see more charges laid. On the flip side, like from your perspective, lifting this triage protocol, I guess probably one of the most obvious questions I could ask is how are we doing with legal aid funding? That comes into play, doesn't it? It does come into play. And the answer is, in short, not particularly well. Uh, let me start by saying the triage protocol has not been 
particularly felt by the uh, defense bar in the last couple of years as the resourcing of the Crown Prosecution Service has steadily and gradually improved, uh, the number of cases that are being withdrawn simply because there are not enough resources to prosecute them has reduced lower and lower and lower. So the the announcement by the provincial government that the triage protocol is being removed is not earth-shaking in any way. It's not going to have a major effect on anything. Uh, if the government is serious about trying to in fact, prosecute every case, have a trial in every case where there should be a trial, then they need to put the resources into it. And uh, frankly, as as Dallas has just said, the Crown Prosecution Service is not under-resourced right now. They were for a long time. Right now, they're doing pretty well. Certainly, we know the police are not under-resourced. They are never under-resourced. Now, if you hire more policemen, can you get more criminal charges? Sure. That's ask any sociologist. Hiring more policemen will result in more people being arrested and charged, not necessarily being convicted of anything, but being arrested and charged. But if the government is serious about actually resourcing the justice system adequately, uh, they will create more courtrooms. They will appoint more judges. They will hire more judicial support staff, more court clerks, more sheriffs, more probation officers, more bail supervisors. And that will have an actual measurable effect. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was at a conference in Prince Edward Island of lawyers from across Canada, the Uniform Law Conference of Canada. And uh, we had a presentation from the uh, chief prosecutor of Prince Edward Island. He was talking to us about how their justice system works. So if you get arrested and charged, you make your first appearance in Charlottetown Provincial Court and you plead not guilty, your trial date will be in 90 days or less, 90 days to trial in everything other than a homicide. That is what a properly resourced justice system looks like. Now, I've told people to start and say, well, yeah, but it's Prince Edward Island. What have they got, like four charges? You know, there's not a lot of crime going on. That's true. But they also have a smaller population and therefore a smaller tax base and therefore a smaller economy and therefore a smaller budget provincially. So everything is in scale. Uh, now, I haven't done the research to give you the actual numbers, but when you look at justice as a proportion of the total budget, if you look at Prince Edward Island, you can see what a properly resourced justice system looks like that actually has enough judges, enough courtrooms, enough crown prosecutors, enough money and legal aid to provide defense counsel. And people are at trial in 90 days, not in 18 months the way they are in Alberta. There's one thing that Paul said. I agree with everything he said. There's one aspect, though. There is a dichotomy between what's happening in some of the larger centers and what's happening in some rural areas. There are some rural areas where the elimination of the triage protocol is going to have a significant impact. We are overbooking courtrooms with trials to try to stay under the Jordan timelines. And we are we have been aggressively triaging in some of those locations. And in some of those locations, our prosecution service isn't completely staffed and they're struggling to find RCMP officers to cover. So I do, I agree with everything that Paul has said, but there is a bit of a dichotomy between what happens in the larger centers and is happening and what's happening in some of the smaller centers. I, I, I hate to say stuff like this, but I don't know who would want to be an RCMP. I don't know who'd want to be a cop right now, quite frankly. I don't think we pay them enough i think that there's a great degree of stress i think that the dynamic between police and the public has changed and for good reason in a lot of circumstances a lot of fair criticism there's more eyes on police now obviously body cams 
social media, people's camera phones have changed everything. Some situations in context are captured. Some situations out of context are captured. Uh, it can make for a really messy situation, but we're talking now about, and in rural areas in particular, when you talk about what the triage protocol is in, in layperson's terms, we're also talking about catch and release. And for a lot of people, like I saw, for example, here in our live chat, people are making some comments like Lauren, for example, said repeat offenders should be treated differently than first time offenders. One of the more high profile tragedies in Alberta that relates to this would certainly be the, the murder of Constable David Wynn, the RCMP officer outside the Apex Casino in St. Albert, uh, while, while looking to make an arrest, shot and killed by a guy that had a rap sheet. Uh, longer than most people are tall. And it had a lot of folks, uh, most particularly conservatives uh, in federal opposition, demanding uh, what they wanted as wins law. They wanted, uh, I, I, I guess, would you call it bail reform? That, that, that's, I may get caught up on, on, on semantics here or on, or on details, but what you can't ignore is that the general public, and I'd love for both of you to comment on this, uh, maybe you first, Dallas, the general public is under the belief that a lot of people, a lot of criminals, quite frankly, are arrested in the morning. These may have been people that were arrested yesterday and the day before. They're out by mid-afternoon, and they're a problem for police and the general public again in the evening. Is that accurate? Well, that is people's belief, and it's not really for me to comment on what they believe. But, but do you see that in the courts? I, I, uh, we do. Our association does see people who have committed offenses who come back into court. We um, have a contested bail hearing, and we oppose release sometimes, or we propose conditions that we think are sufficient. And sometimes uh, we're not successful in our position, and those people are released, and unfortunately they commit additional offenses going back to um the police officer's job they i agree with you they have a very difficult job they have to make decisions in the moment that impact people for the rest of their life that impact them for the rest of their life yeah so nothing said here i, th I think should be a disrespect to police and and the duty that that duties that they um they serve um there was a significant change in how we dealt with bail in this province as a result of of what happened in that case uh, bail hearings are now handled by Crown prosecutors. Previously, a lot of them are done by police. And a decision was made that they should be done by prosecutors who would have more training and more time to review cases before making decisions about release. And that is what's happening now. And as it relates to the treatment of people who have committed offenses previously, the criminal code does require us to treat them differently. In sentencing, it's an aggravating factor if you've committed prior offenses. And when it comes to speaking to release, it's a, a contentious uh, fact, and it impacts um, the analysis that's done in court if the accused has a prior record. So it is considered. And one of the concerns our association has is that when people are released, that it's because the Crown has simply just agreed to let them go in the face of realizing that they're a danger to the public. We have an ethical obligation and a legal one that if we think someone's a danger to the public and we can justify that they are, that we're supposed to make submissions that they should not be released or that they should be released on conditions. I'm sure Paul will get into this in more detail next and I don't want to steal all the time, but underlying all of this is the presumption of innocence and the right to reasonable bail. 
And often those concepts are lost in these discussions. And those are basic tenets of the justice system that cannot be overlooked when we're talking about this issue. Well, I mean, that's why I'm grateful to have both of you here, because a lot of these things are litigated in the court of public opinion, uh, which is understandable because people come to forums like this to talk about things that matter to them and things that impact them. But we don't always have all the facts and we don't always have a fulsome understanding of how things work. Uh, if you're just tuning in, if you're live streaming the audio on the Mixler audio app presented by California Closets, we're talking to that was Dallas Sopko, who's the president of the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. I'm about to ask a question of Paul Moreau, who's president of the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. Paul, what, what would you say to, to the average Albertan or the average Canadian that, that looks around them? Let's say maybe they're, they're a, a rural landowner. Maybe they live in a rural community and, and, and they see people on their property all the time. Maybe they've, they've been targeted by, by, by you know, people that are, that are breaking and entering and, and maybe they're seeing familiar faces again and again and again. Do you, do you acknowledge that, that there is a catch and release reality to what's going on right now? No, not at all. Uh, and I, you started this by saying that, uh, you know, one of your listeners wrote in to say people who have prior records should be treated differently. The short answer is they are treated differently, as Dallas has pointed out. A prior criminal record is something that is taken into account at a bail hearing by a judge or justice of the peace. It's taken into account at a sentencing by a judge who's deciding what sentence should be imposed for any particular crime. So they are treated differently. Catch and release is a, a buzz phrase that's been put forward by primarily the conservative opposition in Ottawa and the conservative government in Edmonton uh, to describe a system that they have actually no understanding of. Uh, people don't realize, at least the politicians pretend that they don't realize that our constitution is premised on the idea that people who are arrested and charged are innocent. They are presumed innocent until and unless proven guilty according to law in a fair and impartial trial. So what we're talking about is do you put people in jail who are innocent? And the Constitution further in the Charter specifically provides that people who are charged with an offense have a right to reasonable bail. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets bail, but it does mean that when a judge is thinking about whether or not to release someone on bail, they start from a presumption that most people should be released on bail. And in most cases, the Crown has to demonstrate reasons why the person should not be released. For example, maybe they've got a lengthy and related prior record. Maybe the circumstances of the case are so egregious, so serious that this person should not be released on bail. Maybe there are facts known to the Crown that prove that this person's likely to be a flight risk and won't show up for court. Maybe there are facts that demonstrate this person is a real danger to particular witnesses or victims in that particular case. Those are all reasons why bail can be denied. And people who talk about catch and release maybe should inform themselves about the statistics. There are more than twice as many people in jail in Canada right now because they have been denied bail than are in jail because they're serving sentences. Let me just explain that again. If you divide the prison population Canada into thirds, one third of them are serving sentences. They're guilty. Two thirds of them are innocent and have been denied bail. Anybody who talks about catch and release bail system clearly doesn't understand the reality of the Canadian justice system. Uh, did, do the numbers that Paul's presenting align with your understanding of what the prison population I, I, Rough. Not prison. I should use the word. How does it work again? Is it, it's prison after a two year, two years or more sentence, and it's jail 
uh, prior to or less than two years. Well, Isn't that right? A penitentiary sentence where you go to a federal facility is if you receive a sentence of more than two years. Than if two it's years. less, then you're you're serving in a pro- provincial institution. Okay, but but are the numbers that he's presenting does that align with your understanding of what the dynamic looks like? It does generally, yes. I don't have the specific numbers. I don't know the specific report that's being referenced, but I do know the Supreme Court of Canada has weighed in several times too about the impact that being denied bail can have on people who are innocent um, pleading guilty to things that they haven't done to avoid a lengthier period of incarceration waiting for a trial. And that is a stain on the system that no one in the system can handle. Uh, It should never happen that an innocent person is... Uh, pleading guilty or found guilty of something they didn't do. And we have to protect against that. So that is one of the reasons why these presumptions exist about the right to reasonable bail and the right to be presumed innocent until proven otherwise by the Crown. Uh, Paul, is like, you know, we, we, we trust the court, I guess, <laughs> or at least in theory, uh, to, to make those decisions about who should be granted bail and, and who should not. Um, is it a defense lawyer's job 100% of the time to argue for bail for their client no matter what no not 100 percent of the time it's the defense lawyer's job to argue for a result that is in their client's best interest in the large majority of cases it is in the client's best interest to be released on bail uh provincial facilities provincial jail facilities where people are housed who are denied bail are notoriously difficult places to serve time there are no programs available. There's very limited access to health care. There's virtually no access to mental health care in those provincial uh, remand centers. So if you've got a client who's got some medical needs, some mental health needs, addiction treatment needs, uh, almost certainly, almost every time, 99 times out of 100, they will be better able to access treatment uh, facilities out of custody than in custody. Now, if you talk about uh, people serving sentences in federal penitentiaries, they're a little better off. They do have better access in the federal system. But when we're talking about bail, that's not part of the consideration. You're either in uh, a remand center or you're out in the community. And you can be out in the community under a variety of different conditions. So quite often, uh, the defense lawyer's job in a bail context involves putting together a release plan that will require the accused to abide by certain conditions, and that could include uh, taking different forms of treatment for addiction or mental health. It will include usually supervision by a bail supervisor. Often it will include residing at a particular address with curfew checks that can be conducted by uh, law enforcement authorities. It can include conditions not to have contact with particular people, not to possess uh, weapons, firearms, drugs, things like that. So there can be all kinds of different varieties of bail order. It's not just in or out. And uh, the defense lawyer's job is to put together a plan that will best assist the accused in achieving a law-abiding lifestyle. Paul, you've, you've teed something up for us, uh, which I'm grateful for, and we're, we're going to get to root causes next. I want to talk about reasons. I think everybody here would agree. I, I think most audience members would agree that this isn't just a matter of convicting, you know, pressing, making the arrest, pressing charges, uh, achieving convictions and locking people up forever. I think that I think that society is more enlightened than that. I think we we understand uh, humanity better than that. So I want to go there. Plus, 
I'm a little confused about the position the Alberta government's taking on cracking down on drug crimes. And I'm hoping that both of you can go there with me as, as well. And, and, and maybe I'm off on this, but, but maybe I'm not. Uh, we're talking right now, that was Paul Moreau uh, from the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association, president there, and Dallas Sopko is the president of the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. Uh, if you're living in or around uh, our neck of the woods, if you're in Sherwood Park, Alberta, I want to remind you that this week weekend, you have a chance to participate in what has been a month-long celebration of Indian films. That's right. Coming up this weekend, the India Film Festival of Alberta continues its province-wide tour in Sherwood Park. That's from September 23rd through the 25th. You can find all the details at indiafilmfestival.ca. These uh, are films, some of them showcasing uh, some of the established master filmmakers that Bollywood has produced over the decades. Some of them are the rising stars, the up-and-comers, the first-time directors. Films from all four corners of India, featuring as many as 10 different Indian languages, subtitled so absolutely everyone can enjoy them. And the lineup really is something that a lot of people have been celebrating because when you look at at the scope of Indian film. If you look at the global audience, it's enormous and there's good reason for it. Some of the best storytellers in the world are coming out of India and you can see them in action. Watch their work this weekend in Sherwood Park from September 23rd through the 25th. Again, that's indiafilmfestival.ca. Our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy want to remind you that if you're a journeyman, if you're an electrician, you've got your ticket or maybe an apprentice and you're soon to be there, you don't have to look very far for work. If you're looking for a great career opportunity, you want to be part of Canada's movement toward green, sustainable energy, Kubi wants to hear from you. You can check out the careers link at kubienergy.ca. For members in our Calgary audience, circle your calendars a week from today. Kubi's going to be at the Fall Home Show in Calgary from September 29th through October 1st. They're ready to answer all your renewable energy questions. Maybe you're a homeowner or a business owner. Maybe you're a property manager that's, I don't know, thinking about solar but still unsure about making the switch. Their team will be happy to educate you on the benefits of clean energy. Come chat with industry experts and cut through the bullshit with Kubi Energy at the Fall Home Show September 29th through October 1st. If you're looking to treat yourself this weekend and you're in the Metro Edmonton region, make sure you swing by a Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park. That's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road all the way through till the end of September. The blizzard of the month is the Snickerdoodle Cookie Dough Blizzard Treat. Find sugar, spice, and everything nice blended into the Snickerdoodle Cookie Dough Blizzard Treat. Now, this flavor is a hit year-round, but, but something about fall just calls for that cinnamon-sugar combo, right? And don't even get me started on their signature stack burgers. Save yourself the work and effort of preparing a bite to eat that you know everybody in the family is going to enjoy this weekend and visit the Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And as you're watching all the kids now settling into school a few weeks back now in the classroom and, and you're starting to think about your own future, maybe it's a new job opportunity that's got you motivated, maybe it's a career field or, or even just an area of study that you've always been intrigued by. 
Tens of thousands of Canadians trust their post-secondary experience to Athabasca University, number one, because the online programs and courses offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace, and number two, the schedule. It's not just the, the lack of a commute that a lot of people love. It's the fact that the schedule suits your lifestyle. If you want to get a program or a course done ahead of schedule, you can do it. If you need to take a break for family, maybe it's a vacation, maybe it's illness, maybe it's just real life getting in the way. You're never going to fall behind because you're plotting your own course, utilizing the resources of Canada's open university. That's Athabasca University online at AthabascaU.ca. For more than a decade, Dallas Sopko has been working as a Crown Prosecutor in the province of Alberta. He's joining us today in the context of his role as president of the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. Paul Moreau's done that job. He's worked as a Crown Prosecutor, and now he's working as a criminal defense lawyer. He's also president of the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. Why don't we talk about root causes? I think everybody understands that whether we're talking about uh, homelessness or the affordable housing crunch like we did yesterday with three Alberta mayors sitting right around this table, uh, whether we're talking about the opioid crisis or rates of violent crime on the rise, people will acknowledge that this isn't all just about arrests and incarceration. There's so much more that goes into it, Dallas. Uh, what what are some of your high-level thoughts on this? Yes, it's definitely not black or white. Uh, quite often we hear, you know, people are um, addicts who need help or they're criminals. Unfortunately, those two concepts intertwine. Uh, mental health and addictions, we find often in the system our association does, intertwine and they end up with people coming before the system. Uh, often, but not always, people of lower socioeconomic status end up before the courts. And they're the ones who are often underrepresented. They can't afford lawyers. They don't understand the process. And they're the ones who um, disproportionately end up behind bars. So when we're talking about how to address the root causes of, of crime, I'm not an expert in that topic, but I can tell you that our members, when we're reviewing pre-sentence reports, it's very common that these uh, accused people have gone through traumatic experiences in their lives uh, many of them have struggled, struggled with mental health addiction uh, or mental health issues and drug addiction intertwined. So it's not that simple. And if uh, we want a just, safe, peaceful society, there needs to be resources for the justice system, but they need to be intermingled and intertwined with uh, getting at the root causes and, and more social uh, supports for these people who are in the system, for sure. Paul, my guess is that you don't see your clients uh, simply as case files. Like, I, I, I would imagine that some of them are maybe recurring clients. Uh, some of them you get to know a little bit. You get insight into their family life, maybe what their upbringing was. I, I bet that you present compelling representations of their backgrounds in court. Uh, in the context of bail or, or sentencing. What's your assessment of the availability of some of the resources that Dallas, Dallas is talking about when it comes to your clients and the, and the people that you represent? Sure, you're right, Ryan, and, and you always try to do that. And uh, the, I got to say, this show is a bit of a rare event for Dallas and myself both because we're agreeing with each other about just about everything. I didn't which, expect that, to be honest yeah. with you. I we, hope it's uh, not held against me. We, lawyers are supposed to argue. Yes. Likewise, right? We we make our livings arguing with each other. But in this program, uh, the topics that you're bringing up are ones on which we, I think, really see eye to eye to a great extent. And you're quite right to say that uh, if we want to really attack crime, if we want to really do something to see the amount of crime in society being reduced, we need to take a serious look at the root causes of crime. So for the last 
50, 80, 100 years, the approach of the justice system has been to say uh, the way to prevent crime is to impose longer and longer jail sentences and increase the maximum sentence, impose mandatory minimum sentences, put people in jail for longer. Uh, well, generally speaking, it's true that people don't commit more crimes while they're actually in jail. Uh, almost everybody gets released from jail sooner or later. So we need to look to the research that's being done by the social scientists and the sociologists and criminologists who actually research and look into the question of what drives offending behavior. And uh, Dallas is quite right. He's, uh, as he says, he's not an expert in this. I'm not an expert either. But you can't do cases over and over and over for years upon decades and see the same things over and over again and not start to have an understanding of it. Uh, so trauma, which leads to addiction, which leads to offending behavior, is a cycle that we see repeated over and over. We see this every day in court, and it is so common that you can't help but think this must be a general rule. And in fact, if you start to look at some of the social science research, uh, it becomes very clear that early and untreated trauma leads almost inevitably to addiction, substance abuse, and substance abuse and addiction inevitably, almost inevitably, lead to crime. Uh, so if we want to really attack uh, the root causes of offending behavior, what we need to do is increase the resources, not in the justice system, but in the healthcare system, to treat mental health problems and to treat addiction problems. That's where we're going to really have some effect. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about uh, drug crimes and, and prosecuting drug crimes, but you touched on mandatory minimums, and that was a, that was a big thing. Like if you look at the, the sort of the Stephen Harper era, or, or what you might call the Stephen Harper legacy, and, and how people might characterize the years in which he was prime minister, in particular with the majority government, mandatory minimums would be one of the things that people would point to as, as a contentious issue, uh, right? And again, I don't want to describe things in layperson's terms; I'm probably way off, but it, but it's basically if you're convicted of certain serious crimes, there is a minimum sentence. Sentence that that you're looking at. I wonder if this might be an area where the two of you would would disagree. Uh, uh, Dallas, you're, you're going to say to me, "No, I, I'm not giving my personal opinion." I'm saying we we understand the caveat. Yes. Uh, in theory, uh, in principle, do you support something like mandatory minimums? Are they an effective deterrent? I'm going to give you a lawyer answer. Uh, our members agree that there needs to be serious. Of, of uh, punishment for serious offenses. The the punishment should fit the crime. What happens with mandatory minimums, though, is that they unintentionally um, can impact people who weren't contemplated when the mandatory minimum was put into place. They're called reasonable hypotheticals, where someone commits an administrative offense uh, who's not your typical violent uh, uh, firearm-wielding person out in public, and they can be caught by these minimums, and it wouldn't be fair for them to receive that minimum sentence. So that's one of the, the struggles the court has when they're determining whether or not a mandatory minimum is constitutional. The other thing is, is it, it in some respects, eliminates the discretion of the judge to impose a fit and proper sentence. And whether there is a mandatory minimum or not for certain crimes does not mean that the courts haven't over a period of time said that sentences for this type of crime need to be significant and that a starting point of a certain amount is generally appropriate and then we work up and down from there. That's a really broad overview. I'm sure Mr. Moreau has a lot more to say about that, but um, sometimes the, the impact that's 
perceived to come from a mandatory minimum isn't actually what we see uh, come to fruition uh, in real life and in, in the courtroom. Uh, Paul, my guess is that you're just inherently opposed to mandatory minimums. And I'm, am I right? More or less, yes. And and here again, I don't disagree with hardly anything that uh, Dallas has just said. Come on, guys. Um, I know. <laughs> mandatory minimums are a problem for a number of different reasons. Uh, so when the uh, Harper government took office in Ottawa, at that time, there were about six or seven mandatory minimums in the criminal code. By the time they left office, there were more than 80. The Supreme Court of Canada has been slowly and steadily striking them down because most of them are contrary to principles of the Charter of Rights. So there are many fewer now than there used to be. But the principal problem with mandatory minimums is that they don't leave any room for a sentencing judge to take into account mitigating factors. I mean, if you look at the very first case, one of the very first cases where a mandatory minimum sentence was struck down by the court, uh, it's a case called Smith, and it was about uh, importing a drug, importing narcotics into Canada. So uh, the Supreme Court of Canada is looking at this, and the mandatory minimum sentence was seven years in prison for that crime. Now, no doubt when Parliament enacted it, they were thinking about organized gangsters importing container loads of heroin and cocaine and all of that. But the Supreme Court of Canada looked at it and said, well, look, this mandatory minimum sentence applies to anyone who's convicted of this offense. So let's think about a teenager, 18 or 19 years old, with no prior criminal record, who goes on spring break vacation, maybe to Florida, and comes back with one single joint, one marijuana cigarette, gets caught at the border. Seven years in prison for that? That cannot be a reasonable sentence. So they struck down the mandatory minimum sentence. All of the other litigation since then concerning mandatory minimum sentences has followed the same kind of analysis. You have to look at all the sorts of cases that are captured by the definition of the offense and ask whether in any of those cases would the mandatory minimum sentence be unreasonable? Would it be overly harsh? And in many cases, the courts have found that it is. Uh, really, at the end of the day, mandatory minimum sentences amount to this. It amounts to Parliament saying, uh, judges, even though we've appointed you, we've selected you through our process, which, by the way, is secret and private. And we're not going to tell anybody about it. Uh, but we don't trust you. We don't trust you to impose sentences that are proportionate to the seriousness of the offense. So we're going to put a floor and make sure that you can't go below that floor. Uh, the principal reason that I oppose mandatory minimum sentences, speaking personally as a practitioner who's been doing criminal cases for over three decades, is that I do trust judges. By and large, the large majority of the time, judges come up with more or less the right answer. And they don't need to have their discretion constrained by mandatory minimum sentences. So unlike Parliament, I do trust the judges. Huh. And the concern is that um, the public is left with the impression that because there isn't a mandatory minimum for a crime or because it's been struck down, that the courts aren't instructing everyone in the system that this is serious and that serious sentences need to be imposed. And one example is as it relates to uh, crimes of uh, sexual violence against children. The Supreme Court of Canada has recently said that we need 
to increase the sentences because we're starting to understand the impact that these offenses have long term, not just physically, but psychologically. And the social norms have evolved over time. And the sentences imposed, for example, for that type of offense need to increase. So uh, the concern that we have as an association is the fact that there isn't a mandatory minimum or that it may be struck down for a certain offense doesn't necessarily mean that it's a conveyance by the Supreme Court of Canada or some other court that this, the offense isn't serious and it shouldn't be treated seriously by everyone who's involved. Uh, let me, I, I want to pop in on our live chat. There's been like a, a, a great conversation happening and, and people are bringing their own personal perspectives to this. And, and I can tell that there are some, uh, some farmers or at least some folks that are living in rural communities that are sharing their perspectives. We have people uh, living in, in, in major city centers, perhaps right down in the, in the downtown core um, is what I'm gleaning from their perspectives here. One gentleman by the name of Greg quotes former Premier Ralph Klein. Now, the context, Klein was talking about BSE. He, he was talking about beef, n- not humans, uh, with his shoot, shovel, and shut up. Uh, but Greg is talking about rural crime, and, and maybe he's being just a little bit facetious, I hope, but he says, shoot, shovel, and shut up. That's how one protects their property. Hmm. Is there concern? And I guess I'm not acting like there's a big vigilante problem in the province of Alberta. But if rural crime, if the perception is that it's going unaddressed, if the perception is that we have a catch and release problem, if the perception is that violent sexual offenders are being released into the public and and we're on all the mailing lists, right? Like as a media outlet, we get all the notes from the Edmonton police and the RCMP and everybody else that says that this individual is being re-released and we believe that there's a high likelihood that they may re-offend. What the hell are people supposed to do with that information? Paul, do you worry that citizens may start trending toward taking things into their own hands? Well, we have seen occasional cases. I agree with you. I don't think that's a significant or widespread problem. But the attitude that is conveyed by the uh, caller who just, uh, uh, you know, emailed you or, or made that comment is certainly worrying because, of course, you know, Dallas prosecutes and I defend people who are convicted and are charged with murder all the time. Uh, so if this particular person who's just sent this message uh, to your uh, email address says that, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot anybody who comes on my property. I'm going to bury the body and not tell anybody. Uh, I can cannot tell you that that is anything other than murder, most likely. So uh, that person may find themselves looking for me to defend them, and they may be facing Dallas across the courtroom prosecuting them. So, uh, you know, if you want to be an offender, be an offender, but don't pretend you're a law-abiding citizen while you're committing crimes. Generally, do now, you have do you have a concern? Uh, Paul, I didn't mean to step on your toes there. You want to finish your thought? Well, no, I I was just going to say, you know, the problem that people in rural areas often talk about is they have to be self-reliant because help is so far away. The response time for the RCMP is 30 minutes or 50 minutes or 90 minutes from where they are. Uh, Well, isn't the problem there the lack of sufficient police resources? I don't think the problem is the criminal code. The problem is the lack of police support, right? What I can say... I mean, it's a difficult comment to respond to in a lot of ways. Um, What I can say is that the fact that you are living in a rural area and that you are vulnerable because of that is a factor that's taken into account during bail hearings and when we're uh, involved in sentencing. And I can tell you that we've been instructed by case law and and by the government uh, 
through policy that offense is committed on vulnerable people, whether it's because they live in a rural area, if it's because of their age, if it's because of the reliance on the offender or the accused person, we're supposed to take that into account and so are the courts. So I, I'm, uh, I'm concerned that the perception is left that um, we don't acknowledge as a system uh, the vulnerability of people in these situations and we most definitely do. And, and that's probably the best I can do to answer to that comment. Uh, in the news, just over the past couple of weeks, Alberta's Justice Minister, uh, Minister Amory, and, and Alberta's Public Safety Minister, Minister Ellis, uh, along with police chiefs and other uh, leaders, uh, elected leaders and otherwise, uh, in the context of what we're talking about, have, have vowed to make changes uh, for Albertans that are concerned about rising rates of violent crime. Um, and, and quite frankly, a lot of this is anecdotal as well. You know, you hear, you hear of, a, of a senior citizen, an 82-year-old, stabbed on an Edmonton transit vehicle just last week. You hear of people beaten uh, in transit centers and, and at festivals. And, and I think that there's a general sense that more needs to be done. And so the province says it's going to, uh, in particular with a special team of Crown prosecutors. They say that'll look at violent crime in downtown Calgary, downtown Edmonton, and, and other communities. And there's also a vow to crack down on drug crimes. Um, and I've got a couple of questions here. Number one, my understanding is, and, and maybe I'm going to end up looking stupid here, but my understanding was that that's a federal jurisdiction. Uh, but the provincial government's making a big deal talking about this. Is that even in their wheelhouse? Uh, largely not. Um, our prosecution service here in the province largely does not prosecute drug offenses. We do as it relates to youth. And then we have what's called a major minor agreement with the feds. So if someone's charged with a multitude of offenses and the most serious is the drug offense, then the federal prosecution service will take it. And if the most serious offense is not the drug offense, then the general rule is we take it. But as a general rule, in most cases, if you're charged with uh, trafficking or if you're charged with a, a CDSA offense, a drug offense, that largely falls within the jurisdiction of the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. So the presence or absence of resources within the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service has very little to do with the ability of the government to respond. Um, as far as what happens in the courtroom to a position that they need to crack down on that type of crime. Uh, Paul, what was, your, what was your sort of first reaction when you, when you heard the provincial justice and public safety ministers making this promise to crack down on, on drug crimes? It, it, seemed, it, it struck me as a weird announcement. Yeah, it struck me in much the same way as other announcements we've heard from provincial politicians who want to do something about the international border control or aviation law or other things like that that are not their jurisdiction. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought it was really all that hard if you get elected to a prominent political position to educate yourself a little bit about what's your job, what's in your wheelhouse, and what's not. So as far as the provincial government is concerned, drug crimes are not in their wheelhouse, not their business. Dallas is dead right about that. Okay, they, the, the, the ministers were also talking about involving stakeholders, and I'm curious to know how your meeting with the minister went in all of this. Um, to date, we haven't. Uh, met with the minister about, what? about um, this. Yeah, uh, we know that there were several stakeholders that were involved with the announcement. And I we understand that there's some preliminary plans about how to roll out this goal, this vision. But uh, we haven't uh, uh, had the Hang opportunity on a second. to meet with him. You're telling me that the provincial government is, has already spoken to Albertans. They've already spoken to the general public about their plan to better prosecute violent crime in Alberta, and they've not yet met with the Crown prosecutors? Uh, that's correct. They haven't met with our association, and we represent almost uh, all prosecutors, and we represent all prosecutors' interests. Um, and that's unfortunately where things have been. 
uh, it's up to politicians to make uh, plans of how to deal with issues on a broad perspective. A goal of just and peaceful and safe society is a laudable one. We don't, we don't take any issue with that goal. Our concern is the public's perception that we're ready and able to take on additional demands um, that will come from these um, goals or visions and uh, that unless there's resources, and what I would call it is an investment. It's not just an expenditure. It needs to be an investment that if you want things to improve, if you've got this plan, we need to know the details of the plan to make it happen. And we need the resourcing from front to back, from judges to courtrooms to sheriffs to clerks. We are already struggling to, to man uh, security in the courtrooms that we have. And if there's a presumption that there's going to be more charges and more trials and more police laying more charges, and we're not going to be able to uh, utilize the triage protocol, that's going to require more resources. And that's the nub of the issue from our association's perspective. Uh, my understanding is that both of you have to be in court today. We respect your time. We're grateful you've made time for us. But I want to make sure that we, we don't leave something when, when we end this talk and you go, gosh, I wish we would have had a chance to, to put that in front of everybody. Uh, maybe just sort of, a, a, if you will, Paul, a closing argument. What's one thing you'd like to see our audience thinking about as they walk their dogs or ride their bikes this weekend? Well, we've been hearing a lot of talk in the media about bail reform, and we touched earlier on the so-called catch-and-release system. And this ties into what Dallas was just talking about, about adequate resources. So there's a bill before Parliament right now that is being talked about as a bail reform bill. I've read it. It changes very, very little in the criminal code. If you look at specific cases that are currently being discussed in the media, and you carefully examine what actually happened in those cases, you will see that in almost all of them, the failure is not a failure of the law, and it's not a failure of the court system. It's a failure of resourcing the support and supervision of people who are released on bail. So we come back again and again to the idea of adequate resourcing. And here we've got the Alberta provincial government putting forward this major announcement about a major change in the way criminal justice is being conducted in Alberta without having even spoken to the Crown attorneys who are supposed to carry that out. By the way, uh, the, they haven't spoken to my group either about this topic. Uh, this came as, as much of a surprise to us as it did to Dallas and the Crown attorneys. Uh, so really, if the government is going to be serious about doing something here, they need to look at resourcing in uh, a way that addresses the root causes of offending. And that means resources for mental health treatment, and for addictions treatment. That's Paul Moreau. He's president of the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. Uh, we've been joined in studio by Dallas Sopko, who's the president of the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. We know that uh, there need to be robust supports and, and talented people working on both sides of this equation. And we appreciate both of your availability today to further this discussion and help us deepen our understanding. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having us. You can let us know what you think about the conversation you've just heard. Uh, send us your personal experience, your thoughts to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up in just a moment, Sapria Devetti. We're going to talk about this remarkable story. The Prime Minister says Canada has reason to believe that India is to blame for the high-profile killing of a Sikh leader in B.C. I want to draw your attention to something first, though. On Instagram, you've all heard of Lakeland College, right? Well, they've they've got energy students there. They've got students that are going to be, well, learning how to run production plants and, and driving forward Canada's energy industry and a really neat contribution from our friends at Apex Automation, who supplied 
energy students at Lakeland College with an amazing system to run their production plant. Apex donated and installed their brand new high-end computers, all of the hardware, the speakers, the monitors, you name it, everything they need for those students to be able to practice real-world scenarios in their state-of-the-art lab. The fact of the matter is it wouldn't be a state-of-the-art lab if the team at Apex Automation wasn't there with that donation. And we wanted to give a shout-out to them. This is a company that is proud to put its people ahead of its profits. They make a commitment to their team members, present and future, that they're going to do what it takes to help you realize your true career potential. If you've got your PNG, if you're a professional engineer looking for a change of pace, you want to see your career kick-started, check out the careers link today at apexautomation.ca. Hey, this weekend is a great time to visit Friesen Brothers. If you're one of the 16 Alberta communities, if you're in one of those communities that has a Friesen Brothers, you may know already that Friesen Brothers has their annual tradition on right now. It's the Alberta Beef Roundup. This is a tradition that they've been perpetuating since 1955. Can you believe that? Uninterrupted every single year for just two weeks. Albertans have a chance to fill their freezers with either 70-pound or 50-pound freezer packs that are cut exactly by their master butchers how you want it. You can learn more about the Alberta Beef Roundup by checking out their website, Friesen.com, that's F-R-E-S-O-N.com, or visit them in-store at one of their 16 Alberta locations. We've talked a lot about cost of living. We've talked a lot about inflation and how it's impacting everyday families. Well, that includes the thousands of members of Civic Service Union 52 right here in our home city of Edmonton. These are the people that are working at the libraries, the people that are answering 311 and 911 calls. These are people that are keeping community resources going. And for the last five years, more than 83% of them have seen their wages frozen. So if you take into account inflation, that's a pay cut. And quite frankly, they're looking for your support. They're your community members, your neighbors, they've got families, and they're looking for a fair and equitable workplace. The members of CSU 52 want a cost of living increase, and they know that they've got a better chance of being taken seriously to provide core services to support life in Alberta's capital city if you've got their back. You can find out how you can send a note of support and further what they're trying to do by visiting edmontonforeveryone.ca. And we want to mention as well how proud we are to do business with Complete Care Restoration. We've seen their team in action. They're the ones that built our studio, and they're also the ones that are on the ground right now across the province of Alberta in situations that are, well, quite frankly, tough to navigate. They're helping people that have lost their homes, lost their businesses due to wildfire, due to flood, or other circumstances. They're experts in securing your home or business and its contents, in taking the safety of you and your family into account as they help you get back on your feet. Their full-service trade staff can perform all necessary repairs to homes and businesses, everything from insulation, drywall, painting, carpentry, cabinetry, you name it. If you like what you see in the wide shot on YouTube of our studio and how good it looks in here, and you'd like your business to look the same, you can trust the team at Complete Care Restoration. Every time we take that wide shot, Johnny, it reminds me to give them a big shout out. They're the ones who make it look oh so good here at the Real Talk Studio.
It is a really big day for us, quite frankly, right now, because it's been a while since we've had a chance to check in with our dear friend, Sapria Devetti. You know her. Of course, Sapria is a nationally recognized media commentator. She's done a lot of good work in helping Canadians understand the significance and the key points behind some of the stories that lead the headlines. Uh, Sapria, uh, it's been a while. You've been on our minds and hearts, and we're so grateful to see you back here on the show. Welcome back, my friend. This story involving the Prime Minister and the statement that he made in the House of Commons on Monday that the nation of Canada has reason to believe that Indian agents are responsible for the cold-blooded killing, the targeted killing of a Sikh leader in B.C. has people around the world talking. What was your very first response when you heard that on Monday? My very first response was, whoa, this must be incredibly serious for the prime minister to have made the statement um, that he did on the floor of the House of Commons um, and that the intel that was going to be backing that assertion was going to be pretty ironclad, um, given that this kind of stuff wouldn't have been uh, the decision to, to you know, say it publicly w- was not taken lightly. I'm sure it would have inv- involved, um, you know, multiple conversations with senior national security and um, intel folks, and that it meant, in my mind, that a lot of the warnings that we've been hearing from the Sikh community on the ground here in Canada um, have, you know, basically borne out and come to fruition because they have been um, telling us and telling Canadians um, for quite some time um, that this sort of thing by India was not only plausible, um, but becoming increasingly likely under a more and more emboldened uh, Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi of, of India, as well as a, a an increasingly authoritarian turn um, that India has taken. Um, all of the democracy sort of watching um, experts and folks and organizations that tend to rank countries as either democratic or not, none of them classify India as a full democracy anymore. Um, and yet when we're talking about this in you know everyday Canadian political shows or what have you, it, it's often framed as like we're you know, the we're at war right now is and I'm putting that in air quotes or we're, you know, um, taking it to task with uh, with a fellow Democratic ally. Um, and I'm not discounting India's importance in the geopolitical context, nor am I, um, you know, trying to cast any aspersions of how important India is for things like trade relationships. But I think we have to, you know, spell out all the facts on the grounds for Canadians. And I'm not really seeing that right now. I, I don't know if you saw our conversation with, with Harman Candola earlier this week. You know, the TikTok on that has 280,000 views. Obviously, wow. this has resonated with people. But he says, uh, Hardeep Singh Najart knew that he was targeted. He said he had been informed by Canadian intelligence that he was a target. The day of his killing, he had acknowledged publicly that this was something that he was going to keep talking about but for a lot of canadians this has been a a revelation how much of this do you think lands in the lap of canadian media like oh a lot of it okay 
Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about Canadian media for, for a second. And I'm talking about like actual, you know, mainstream. I'm not talking about like guys that are popping off tweets on, on Twitter or whatever, X or whatever the fuck we call it now. Um, <laughs> but like actual mainstream institutions, like a lot of the, the, a lot of the takes and the reporting are quite frankly, asinine and ahistorical. I mean, the issue of India thinking that Canada is soft on, on Khalistani extremists or terrorists isn't exactly new. It's about as old as I am. Um, and I am, unfortunately, rapidly approaching middle age. Um, and yet it's being presented as some sort of, you know, novel issue that could only really have been created by our bumbling prime minister with nice hair. Right. And again, I don't expect every single person um, who works for a major outlet to know just how unimpressed Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi was with Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Um, but I do expect members of the media to be able to dig into their own archives of just how much of a sticking point um, the issue of Khalistan was for our last prime minister, um, Prime Minister Harper. Uh, during his visit to India in, I think it was like 2012-ish, um, I'm going by memory, so I think it was around then. Um, then Prime Minister of India, Manmohan Singh, um, Sikh man, uh, a member of the Congress party, so not the Hindu nationalist BJP, uh, brought it up with Harper and it became such a sticking point that Minister Singh, uh, Prime Minister Singh didn't even want to hold a joint press conference with Harper at the end of that trip. So I'm not really sure what happened, and but it seems to me like everybody in this commentariat crowd has just suffered some sort of major damage to their hippocampus that they can't even remember what would have happened like a decade ago on this. I'm, I'm curious to know, and, and I've just been, um, by the way, what's different? I guess what's different is that I got fired and you resigned from Chorus because <laughs> all the shit that you did is still online and mine's all erased. Uh, but, but congratulations, because all of your op-eds and all of your columns are still online, which which allows us to look back to the beginning of March in 2018. Uh, when you wrote a piece, uh, you were still at, at 640 AM, 640 in Toronto at the time. Uh, the headline, Canada's Media Oversimplifies Indo-Canadian Relations. And, and you, you, you talked about that just a little bit right now. But, but have we learned anything or has anything changed in the last five years since you wrote that? I mean, unfortunately, no, I don't think anything's changed. And I think things have gotten arguably worse. Um, you know, uh, there's been increasing backsliding of, uh, the, of, of India under, under Modi. There's been decreasing press freedoms uh, during that time and the disinformation operations that are run either uh, by just like Indian right wing chuds on the on social media or like more coordinated, sophisticated campaigns are becoming a lot more brazen and are becoming a lot, quite frankly, just better. And I'm putting that in air quotes um, from a, a, just a, a prevalent side. And a lot of those uh, talking points end up getting picked up by our mainstream media, as well as um, right wing outlets who allow their hate boner for the prime minister to cut off all circulation to their brain. Do how a lot of people are saying, well, Harper and Modi are tight here and and they're referencing some of the work that Harper does with the IDU and and yada, yada, yada. And 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 for that reason, and and rightfully so, a lot of people are paying very close attention to Pierre Polyev's position on this, uh, which very early in the week was that if this is true, 
then uh, this is a, a direct attack on Canadian sovereignty. And then it's kind of evolved as is. I mean, he's the leader of the official opposition. You might anticipate this, but it's evolved into the prime minister needs to disclose to Canadians the evidence that he has to make such a bold assertion, uh, which obviously isn't going to happen for a million reasons. But but what do you make of the delicate dance that Pierre Polyev's got to do here? I think Pierre Polyev did the right thing initially um, with the initial statement that he had put out, which was, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of like, let's all figure this out together, um, you know, and let's be united. It seemed to, uh, you know, get step above the, the partisan fray. And then I think he probably checked right wing uh, Twitter and right wing outlets and their reaction. And I think this party currently is is being led by what some of the more fringe elements of the conservative movement tend to believe and think um, because they're worried about losing any element of that base. And I think it's quite unfortunate um, that the conservative party has taken the stance because you know, right now we're talking about Khalistan and fine, um, but I, I would argue that we should look at this through a, a bit of a wider lens because this has, I'm not discounting the, the Khalistani issue being a, a major sticking point, but it, it's it's really about, um, you know, any sort of uh, minority group, but especially six in, in Canada, in UK and the US speaking out against the Indian government's treatment of, you know, religious minorities generally and, and specifically um, for justice uh, for what happened in, in 1984 following Operation Blue Star and the assassination of Prime Minister Gandhi. For, for those that are, you know, unaware, um, in 1984, the Indian government stormed the holiest shrine uh for Sikhs the golden temple in in Amritsar um in the aftermath of that Indira Gandhi was assassinated and then there were anti-Sikh program programs um or a full genocide um that followed where Sikhs were attacked openly um people that used to be their friends their neighbors um were all of a sudden you know killing raping like in the streets the Indian government was was very largely seen to be complicit in this and so this is I think what ultimately worries the Indian government is that you have the prospect of the Sikh diaspora here in Canada but also in in Britain and to a lesser extent that the, the U.S. Um, really challenging I guess um, the Indian establishment or the Indian elite sort of uh, view on this and the last thing I'll say is that if this was, in fact, only just about Khalistan, um, then I don't think the Indian government would have thrown such a shit fit over the fact that, you know, a few years ago, uh, the Ontario legislature adopted a motion simply recognizing um, what had happened in 1984 against Sikhs as a genocide. Um, and, you know, they it went all the way up to their, you know, Minister of External Affairs putting out a statement and uh, I, I think folks are, are being a little bit myopic by treating this just as uh, an issue that A, cropped up recently, or or B, is solely about, um, it, you know, and I'm putting, again, this in air quotes, like extremists or, or terrorists um, agitating for a separate Sikh, sta a Sikh state.
Uh, on Monday, as the story was breaking, uh, the federal NDP leader, Chakmeet Singh, tweets, Today we learned of allegations that Indian uh, that agents of the Indian government murdered Hardeep Singh Najjar, a Canadian killed on Canadian soil. Uh, to all Canadians, says Chakmeet, this is my vow. I will leave no stone unturned in the pursuit of justice, including holding Narendra Modi accountable. Six years ago, you wrote that Jagmeet Singh needs to brush up on basic communications strategy. How do you assess what he's putting out there on Monday and what he's done or said since? Look, man, I'm going to credit his comms improvement solely to that one column. <laughs> Nothing else. Nice job. Okay. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, um, I, I, I think, you know, these he's meeting the moment. Um, I think... You know, and, and Singh in particular here, it's worth also looking at his past, right? I mean, he was denied a visa to India in 2013. Um, the Indian government will claim that it's because of, you know, his ties or whatever to extremist factions. But the other side of that is, you know, Jagmeet Singh has spent a lo- most of his life advocating um, for minority rights. And that pissed off the Indian government. And I don't know if you if you bother to look down, Ryan, at some of the replies to to Jagmeet Singh's tweet there. But like there are like open threats um, against his life by high profile accounts that are followed by, you know, major Indian officials, including Prime Minister Modi. And that is worrying um, that, you know, the Indian elite feel so brazen about this. And let's just also, you know, bring home the point here that like nobody's denied it (laughs) up until this point, really. Um, And their denial is sort of like, hmm, sure, we didn't do it. But if we did, then we were fucking right to because y'all are soft on these terrorists. And it's like, well, that doesn't it's kind of reads like that. OJ, I didn't really do it, but if I did do it, here's how I would have murdered them, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of talk about the the uh, the G20 summit in in, in India, in New Delhi, and, and even, I mean, like, I, I, I'm sure you were paying attention to this, but even the fact that there was, like, a some sort of mechanical issue with the Prime Minister's plane, and now the PMO is commenting on whether or not they think that the plane was sabotaged because of strained relations, uh, maybe personally, between the Prime Minister and Modi and and maybe between the two nations as well. And I think a lot of Canadians are looking at this. I mean, you mentioned trade and uh, and I'm certainly not implying that because we have to protect exports for Canadian grain or whatever, uh, that we're going to overlook targeted killings of Canadians on Canadian soil. But like bigger picture, uh, one of the things that I think you do best and you do a lot of things well is helping the average Canadian understand what a big story means to them. And what a big story means moving forward and some of the things to keep an eye on. What would you tell the average person that has 10 minutes a week to pay attention to the news headlines about where this is all going? So for the average person, I would say that if these allegations are indeed true and it was found that, you know, high ranking Indian government officials were aware, involved, whatever in this killing of a Canadian on Canadian soil, then what we're going to deal with are further emboldened uh, authoritarians from a myriad of countries. I mean, take your pick, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, that are going to be going after Canadian citizens for dissenting on Canadian soil. 
to let this go unchecked and to not have a incredibly strong response, not just from Canada, but from our allies, and we're seeing that increasingly, right, um, then it's it's going to be very, very dangerous for all sorts of different diaspora communities uh, in Canada. And, you know, right now we're talking about the Sikh community, um, but we could very easily be talking about uh, any number of diaspora communities in Canada that will now have to, you know, contend with a, a world order in which nobody seems to want to pay attention to rules anymore or international norms. Uh, it's so good to talk to you. Before we let you go, I, I just have to ask a reference to your, your resignation. Um, and, and it's hard to believe it was, it was already like three years ago uh, that you walked away from a, a very high profile job uh, on AM 640 in Toronto and, and left Chorus. Um Vice reporting on this, uh, you know, prominent global news host quits, alleging on-air climate increased racist threats. You said on the record that false narratives uh, were allowed on air by the outlet, by Chorus, by Global, uh, about refugees, Muslims, six, and other targeted groups. Um, does this have relevance, this story and what we're talking about right now, uh, to what you experienced personally for, for the months and years leading up to your resignation a few years ago? Yeah, it does. Um, I would say that during the, you know, an arguably disastrous trip that uh, the prime minister had to, to India in, in 2018, during that time, there was all sorts of demonstrably false things that were being said on air by my talk radio colleagues, things that like, you know, um, seek extreme like and this is a, a quote I'm, I'm quoting one of the hosts, um, you know, Sikh extremism is a major issue for all Sikh temples. Um, it's just not true. Um, I was married in a Gurdwara um, in Montreal, uh, the Gurdwara that my family goes to quite regularly here in Oakville. Um, and so I, I don't really know why those kinds of narratives took hold. I mean, I, I, I think right now in this era of hyper partisanship, anything that seems to ding the prime minister is something that the right wing as, as well as right wing media outlets want to cling to, uh, whether that's talk radio, whether that's tabloid print, whether it's an online outlet. Um, and it's incredibly damaging. And when you do allow these false narratives about different communities to take hold, um, it doesn't happen in a vacuum nor does it happen in the abstract. Um, the reality is, is it, it increases hate for those communities on the ground. Um, and in my case, because I was, you know, public facing and it was known that my husband was was sick, um, I was, you know, I'd get really terrible threats and hate mail. And, you know, some of the hate mail is kind of funny where it's just like, oh, your father must be so disappointed in you. Um, <laughs> and it's like, okay, like, who the fuck cares? Um, but like, but there's also like, you know, death and rape threats that yeah. go along with that. And that's less funny. Um, and, you know, having to look around your shoulder when you're out um, isn't, isn't fun. And it's not, it's not a great feeling. Hey, um, tell me about this, uh, thing that you hosted the other day where you you were oh, yeah. on stage with like four prime ministers but this pe people can check out your instagram at sups uh you're up there with like jacinda ardern justin trudeau like tell tell what, what was going on here yeah so it was uh part of the uh, 
it's a, a conference every year that's put on um, by Canada 2020, um, as well as the Center for American Progress. It's called the Global Progress Action Summit, um, where you get progressive leaders and you know folks that work in uh, civil society and academia, as well as progressive politics, to sort of uh, come together and you know uh, swap ideas, talk about uh, issues that matter from a, a progressive lens, and. I was asked to moderate the panel between um, our prime minister as well as former prime minister um, of uh, Finland and New Zealand and the current prime minister of Norway. And uh, yeah, it was was fun. (laughs) I put on real pants for it. No big deal. I get excited about hosting something where there's just one prime minister (laughs) and there you go with four of them. Um, It's so good to see your face again. The live chat is exploding with expressions of love and support, Sapria, and we've been thinking about you a lot. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much, Ryan. You bet. You want to show some love to Sapria, you know where to find her on Instagram, on Twitter, and you can always send us a note as well to talk at Ryan Jesperson. Dot com. She did not disappoint. Never does. Two minutes in and we got phrase of the day. Hate boner. I saw that you in the live chat. Hash boner. It's the new hashtag hate boner. I need a bumper sticker that says that. I'll be putting it all over. We, we, we can bumper. do more like people can find uh, Real Talk merch on our website, RyanJesperson.com. Oh, my God. If we had a little uh, Supriya emoji head with hate boner beside it. Why I, not? I would love it. We we don't do like if you if you look at some of the podcasts that uh, that really churn out T-shirts, mm-hmm. uh, they do them with like the slogans and the catchphrases and the mm-hmm. develop in the hashtags. We, we could do. I wonder how the hate boner T-shirt would sell. Probably sell out. Probably pretty good. Yeah. Somebody on somebody on the chat said, "Well, there's your TikTok," <laughs> and I think you're absolutely right, uh, friends. I'm just I'm just going to let you know what's going on right now. This is kind of an unusual circumstance, and 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 a lot of you are going to be disappointed because you're not going to hear your emails on Trash Talk. But that's because we're already this is going to be a record setting length for Trash Talk. But it's Johnny and I are off next week. We're still working, uh, but Real Talk's going to be taking a break. Johnny's going to be doing some incredibly exciting. We're not going to talk about what it is. Is, but real talk's going to look a little bit different. Uh, into let's, say, the, let's say better, no, not oh, different. Way better. Yeah, uh, we're incorporating uh, some cool stuff. Someone's going to write in and say, "What, just because you start wearing a mask?" Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> the, the show's production quality is going to be even better uh, more than a week from now. And I'm very proud to be hosting the Bomex National Conference in Edmonton all next week, uh, which is uh, people involved in commercial real estate and property management, commercial property management uh, from across the country. They're coming to Edmonton, and I'm proud to be hosting that. Uh, but it also means that that we're going to be taking a week away. And so we thought that it fit to give you a little bit more to sink your teeth into on this weekly tradition that we have on Fridays, uh, presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. And also, there's been a lot going on. Uh, in particular, that, quite frankly, discouraging display that was the One Million March for Children earlier this week. Our inbox has not been this slammed in a while, and we are responding by presenting an extended duration trash time! Johnny, you trying to make me pass out or what? I love that you got your mask on there. I was talking full face mask. Full face mask. Hey, what about this one from Michael? And by by the way, although we're going to be talking about an event that said it was for the kids, this trash talk is 
not for the kids because a lot of you are, well, you're saying what you think without hesitation, and that's the beauty of it. Michael says, I've been doing my best to ignore this event, this Million March for Kids, because frankly, I'm just so tired of right-wing fuckwads and their BS. The endless stream of hate is something I needed to take a break from, but what I saw during that march was about as un-Canadian as anything I've witnessed in my nearly 70 years in this country, and I'm pretty sure I know why I feel that way. It's because this isn't Canadian. It's true that Canadians were involved and it took place in Canada, but there's big money behind the types of productions like what we saw, and I choose the word production deliberately because this was as orchestrated as anything you'd see in a movie theater. There's an international right-wing movement, well-funded, and they're roaming the globe looking for anything they think they can exploit. Doesn't matter what the issue is, any functioning democracy will do because this is part of a global effort to eliminate democracy. They'll use any excuse like using kids, exploiting them for their own sick and sad purposes. Michael said, I don't know where this is going or how it's going to end, but in the near future, expect more of these hate parades. Even here in Canada, it's Trumpism, which doesn't even really have much to do with Trump himself anymore. He could keel over, be tossed in a jail cell. It wouldn't matter. Trumpism is out of the box. It's loose in the world, and it can show up anywhere. Canada's got a taste of it, and for many of us, it was the same freedom convoy energy we've seen before. No sincerity, no real issues, just hate. That from Michael. Here's another one from another Michael, who says to all you Alberta lefties and centrists and progressive conservatives, get off your asses! This province is heading in a dangerous direction, and apathy deserves a lot of the blame. Michael says, I attended the counter-protest at the Alberta Teachers Association on Wednesday. I was discouraged to see that this far-right group outnumbered allies by about three to one. He says that was later confirmed by news video shot from a helicopter. I I thought that for sure we could muster a group bigger than them. I believe that they're just a fringe minority, that they're misguided, often hateful, very scared, fear-mongering, and worst of all, wearing plain and very uncolorful clothes. But they are loud and proud. (laughs) I know, right? That's hit where it hurts, does Michael. He says, ironically, loud and proud, and the silent majority needs to get off our asses and show them that take back Alberta and the far right will not take our beloved province. I became the chair of my kid's parent advisory council. He says, not a big deal. He says, I took our toddler to the counter-protest to add to the numbers. I'm working to stay informed on progressive issues, and I'm doing everything I can so take a stand, everybody, and specifically to the protesters, many of whom claim to be Christians. Jesus did not say, let the straight, white, able-bodied, wealthy children come to me. He said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. So if Jesus didn't discriminate and there's evidence through the New Testament that he didn't, why the hell do you? That from Michael. This from Laura, who wonders, when did hate become okay? I was stuck in traffic during that protest, the counter-protest. I believe in the right to protest, but the actions of the individuals involved were sickening. As a teacher to young kids, I believe it's our right to protect and care for students. So I sat in my car in shock of what I watched unfold around me. On my right, students, parents, teachers, allies of the LGBTQ2S plus community standing up against hate. On my left, pure hatred. Hatred that made me fear for those standing up for the right to be who they want to be. The right to be seen as an individual in the community who's loved and cared for equally. In my immediate view, there were young kids standing with parents shouting hateful words across the street. And then young adults driving by shouting words of hate out their windows. The scene broke me, says Laura. Tears of sadness started flowing and didn't stop. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. Now, I don't live in a bubble, but when did this all become okay? 
like adrenaline came through to me, but then anger built very quickly. The tears kept flowing, and I wanted my car to become a shield to those who stood in fear. When did it become okay to single out individuals and make them fear for their lives? When did it become okay for anger and hate to be projected on the innocents? Most of all, when did it become okay to teach children to hate? Maybe the parents and protesters involved should consider this. If you love your children, leave them out of hateful protest. Instead, stay at home. Teach your kids about acceptance and difference of opinion. Stop and learn alongside your child about inclusivity. Teach them how to speak out of love, not hate. Laura says, I'll continue to do my best to support and love every child that enters my classroom. It's a safe space, and it's going to stay that way. That from Laura. What about this one from Alexia, who says, Jespo, Johnny, I'm riding in with a heavy heart. My friends and I walked in silence toward downtown Calgary earlier this week, not sure what to anticipate. I visited the website for that one million march for children. I was disturbed to say the least. It seemed to be another small and simple case of misinformation. And it became clear as soon as we arrived that this was rooted in misinformation. I was in shock by what I saw and the hateful things being yelled at us, especially alarming the line of children at the front of the crowd yelling in anger and giving us the middle finger. She says, uh, you know, they believe that they're being indoctrinated, kids are, by this curriculum, which makes space for trans and queer kids to be themselves. She says, I'm a 33-year-old queer woman, and I've never experienced anything like this in my life. I've never witnessed such a large group of people spewing so much hateful rhetoric toward the queer community. Is this Canada? Where are we in the world? What year is it? And how did we get there? Children are not being castrated. Children in Canada are not having gender-affirming surgery. Being queer does not equate to pedophilia. This is an old, hateful argument that is resurfacing. She says, I'm not even angry. I'm disappointed in our leaders. I'm sad and I'm frightened and my heart is heavy. That from Alexia. Gerald wrote in to say, Jespo, thank you for reading our thoughts. Thanks for giving us a chance to sound off. But I want to call you out. Gerald says, at the time of, uh, I was listening to your pod with, uh, pod with uh, Jennifer Laywetz. Remember that? Out of Saskatchewan. She was at the conservative convention. Says, I thought you let her off the hook for not being in the room when they were voting on the trans thing. Uh, but now after the protests and the leak and, and Pierre and all that, I wasn't there. It just doesn't strike me as an acceptable answer. She danced around the topic. And maybe I'm more calling her out uh, because you did try to get an answer. But but this isn't just trans kids in school. As you say, uh, I said on last Friday with Michelle Z. This is about trying to erase people. So if Jennifer or other Conservative Party members can't answer to their party's stance on actual decency and respect to a person's right to exist, how can I believe that they'll tackle housing or health care or addiction care with compassion and respect? That from Gerald. Fair play, Gerald. This from Jack who says, you know, I've been a longtime follower of Alberta politics and what's going on with the GOA, government of Alberta, regardless of who forms it, which party it is. But for about the past year, I've noticed a distinct change in how the government's releasing certain types of statements. In past years, if a minister was releasing a statement recognizing a special day or a special week or something like that, gender equality week, the statement would go out as a standalone item. It would be released the same way as every other announcement. Now, the practice seems to be that certain statements are issued by a summary email earlier in the day. It takes the headline out of the mix. It hides the content of the email. Now, if Danielle Smith's government 
doesn't want people to know about Minister First's statement on Gender Equality Week, or if they don't want the public to see Minister Sani's statement on Consent Week, or things like World AIDS Day, or recognizing Treaty 6, or Local Food Week. Now, I'm not trying to cherry-pick here, but these need to be highlighted. We just witnessed how the Premier handles crises of public safety, how willing she is to get in front of a camera and be supportive to Albertans. I'm not talking about buying happiness. I'm talking about increased violence to people in marginalized communities. I cannot say with certainty that I believe the Premier will be there when she needs to in front of a camera. Instead, a statement buried somewhere in a summary email And I'm supposed to believe that the government, me, as an out gay man in Alberta, is welcoming or supportive of people like me? I don't buy it. That from Jack. And finally, this from Janet, who tees up one of the things that we'll be really digging into when we're back, when we're back in a week from now. And that is the Alberta Pension Plan. Janet says, I'm a fourth-generation Albertan Jespo opposed to a made-in-Alberta pension plan. We have real challenges in Alberta, and our pension is not one of them. I demand that the government focus on health care and education and begin to adequately fund public services. There is no necessity or advantage to leaving the federal pension plan. The decision will create distraction across the country when we could be working collaboratively to develop innovative solutions to the challenges like human-caused climate change, food and water security, healthcare shortfalls, education, and human rights in the province of Alberta. I'm so disappointed to see this distraction take the lead in our dialogue with the rest of the nation. Janet says, I'm a proud Canadian, and it is my right to receive the Canada pension when I retire. Why are people trying to take my rights away? It's unreasonable, and it's greedy to use this partisan, baked-up-in-Alberta report and Albertan resources to fund a stupid fight. That from Janet. You can send us your trash talk anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It is proudly presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. Johnny and I will be gone for a week. We'll still be active on our social media platforms. You'll still see us out and about around town, and we'll see you back here the week after. Hey, thanks for supporting Real Talk. Thanks for liking and subscribing to our content and telling your friends. And most of all, thanks for being part of important conversations like today's. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepherd, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Terry Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.